This podcast is brought to you by the She-Wolf at SheWolf.ca. I'm doing Kickstarter now. I'm meeting Gregory uh, Kamichika here. He's the artist on She-Wolf. The She-Wolf team is the same team as the Eye Collector, um, although it's a bit uh, kind of differently done and differently structured, and it's a different project. Uh, it has, you know, uh, I mean, Com- Gregory doing the art. It has Lyndon doing the letters. I'm uh, writing it. And, you know, uh, it's uh, the next big thing for me, comics-wise, is She-Wolf and also uh, some other secret projects that I can't talk about. Uh, I've got about three or four, I've got three or four little things on the go here. Um, But the next public one you'll know about is She-Wolf. And I want to talk to Gregory here um, about the project, just to give people a bit more insight onto the Kickstarter and why they should support uh, She-Wolf, other than... You know, it just being great <laughs> well, needing support. <laughs> I will say this about the difference between the two projects. Um, I Collector is so much dream work. These wild architectures, these flights of fancies that are held down to the motivations of the characters. You can find it in the narrative. So you've given me all this like sort of freedom to explore these wild, beautiful, strange visual landscapes and then whatever doesn't quite work we have the MacGuffin of the eye collector being like oh that that dipped into the dream world so that's why it's so weird with uh she-wolf we're doing quite the opposite where the story is grounded in the actions and desires of a single narrative and a character that we're following through and i've changed my art style uh if you compare page to page, you'll see obviously it's the same artist, but if you look really closely at it, instead of these billowing ink washes, I have tight structures of panels. I have real tight line breaks. I have characters identifiable in their environments where you don't say, hmm, I wonder are they on the moon or are they in a park when it's snowing? You say, nope, that's a mountainside. Nope, that's a river. Oh, those are trees they're climbing. Like I'm trying much, it's a different type of narrative with the She-Wolf, which is really fun for me because it's more suspenseful. There's more suspense we're trying to build in the She-Wolf. So I have to use space and time very differently, right? Yeah, and a lot of the um, eye collector, I think, is... I mean, they have a similarity story-wise in the sense that a lot of the eye collector is about trying to figure out what is the eye collector <laughs> and what is he doing and why. And with Lee, you know, who's the main character of the She-Wolf, or of She-Wolf, uh, I mean, it's a bit clearer what she's doing. <laughs> she's a serial killer who believes herself to be possessed by a She-Wolf. Um, she believes, you know, effectively to be... Back in, in Dante's Inferno, um, that story begins... Everyone knows the story uh, begins, like, in the dark woods that represent, you know, his midlife. And then, you know, he goes into hell, you know, there's a midlife crisis and he ends up in hell and he's going through hell. But what people often forget is that the actual story reason he goes into hell, because think about the logic of the story. Why would you go into hell? (laughs) Right? He's in the woods, there's the gates of hell. He's like, oh, I'll go check that out. Yeah, in story structure, the inciting incident (laughs) is, of course, the she-wolf is chasing him. The she-wolf is chasing him through the, stalking the woods. He's more afraid of the she-wolf than of hell uh and then there's you know this description of the she-wolf and so on we don't and and so 
I'm not rewriting Dante per se, but there is that sort of inspiration of that moment in Dante and this idea that this character uh, that we're following, you know, the kind of main character is, you know, this sort of psychotic serial killer who believes herself uh, to be, you know, in this, uh, you know, possessed in this manner. She has this interest in the occult. She has this sort of way in which she's a bit of a loner, although she does sort of have her dad as a bit of a confidant. Um, and she has, you know, this desire. I wanted to kind of almost do the reverse of the eye collector, where in the eye collector, the challenge is this thing is trying to give you everybody what they want. And the challenge is how you resist what you want. <laughs> Whereas the she-wolf, you know, here's this creature of desire just sort of hunting. Uh, so I have some questions. So a good... Uh, just before you turned on the microphone, I said, maybe this is a good opportunity for me to hold you accountable a little bit. I want to ask you some questions, things I don't know about the, the She-Wolf doesn't project. doesn't know as much about the She-Wolf because... Because uh, we're not co-plotting. We co-plotted the Eye Collector. But this is, John, this is out of Jonathan's mind, onto a script, and then I interpret the script, which means it gets doled out to me in a different way, which is fine as a collaborator because... And part of the reason for that, uh, as we've discussed, people may not know, part of the reason for this is like, I really envisioned the She-Wolf as a continuing character that I'm gonna tell various stories about with uh, you know, various people. So yeah. Gregor won't be the only artist on the She-Wolf, although he is right now. Later on, I'll have another artist doing a different story. Um, you know, I've got a novella draft, like a whole short novel and draft where I've just written it myself and it's got no artist, there's no art. You know, uh, so it's a sort of thing that I have a bit more. It's more my thing in that sense. Although really, uh, the only person doing any artwork on it is Gregory. Right, but it's a creator-owned project owned by Jonathan, where I'm coming in to yeah, do some as art. As opposed duty. to Eye Collector, where like I brought the project to Gregory, but then we kind of took it yeah. together. And now we own that together. So like, logistically, I don't want Gregory owning part of the shoe off if you know he's someone else is going to be drawing it. And, and yeah, yeah. And this is a totally good. Dis- I mean, there's a, a whole other thing. podcast about how to separate the business aspect. But if we just talk creatively, here's some things I want to ask you about, um, and reveal a source of some trepidation, something that makes me nervous, nervous enough <laughs> about working on the She-Wolf that I, I was like sort of being nervous. Right. I was fine with it being all yours for the following reason. So, and this is a serious thing now. I worked on a book with uh, David Alexander Robertson called Will I See, which was a book about missing and murdered indigenous women and children. Um, a very real issue in Canada. Uh, you know, thousands of people go missing every year, and it is a horrific lived experience shared by many families who have to suffer the indignity and horror of a missing loved one. The Eye Collector is a completely made-up monster, which is a lot easier to work on because nobody in it is real and there's no lived experience. To my knowledge, no um, celestial beings from the moon descend into people's uh, houses to ask them to exchange parts of their children for their wishes. With with Lee and the She-Wolf, we're into this territory where I have some trepidation about the subject matter because... Serial killers are not the work of fiction. They're a real um, facet of the human condition. And the lived experience of one person seeking to take the life of another is something that is quite real. And the one thing that I tried to do to square the circle of it is lean on 
Lee's, um, the architecture in her mind is mythological. And so I borrow yeah. all of these images from, uh, you know, from the Romulus and Remus mythology and from like pottery and all of these depictions of these early wolves in mythology. And I lend that into the art. And that's how I said, I'm going to make sure that what I am doing in my art is addressing the mythology of the hunter and the hunted. And well, I'm going to though. divorce myself from the notion that this shit really happens. Well, it, as the story goes on, like not past the point where that you've kind of seen, yeah, it, it starts to move into that occult supernatural. Okay, area. so that's my next. question. I want there to be a Do question we... early on, though, uh, like in the reader's mind, like it, it, so it'll kind of get less realistic as it's progressing, which is one reason that your art style is great because you don't have a realistic art style, right? So you know, if I was going to just stay in in the realistic mode, realism mode, I would. You know, I don't think I would want your art style, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, no offense, you you understand what I'm saying, right? Totally. But yeah. it's going to move further in that kind of occultic, uh, supernatural direction. But I want an early moment where it's unclear how it's moving in that direction, because uh, precisely for this reason, um, I, I want it to be very troublesome whether or not we're attaching ourselves to this individual. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the reason for that is just simply, if you think of a classic, you know, kind of, you know, more realistic uh, than I'll end up doing. But if you think of a more realistic serial killer figure like Hannibal Lecter. Right. Like a fictional character. Yeah, a let's just stick to fiction Yeah, here. I'm just yeah. talking about fictional yeah. serial killers. Um, if you look at, at a fictional figure like that, there's this attraction repulsion the audience has for that figure, right? They find them fascinating and attractive on certain levels, but they also, of course, are disturbed and repulsed by them, particularly Lecter, right? Jim Carrey's, uh, not, he's not talking about serial he's talking about comedy, but I think it comes from the same place, if you, bear, if you yeah. indulge me. People want to be free of concern. And so I think the itch that is scratched when people read these serial killer stories or they read the Hannibal Lecter stories, they would love to be as free of concern of the consequences of their actions yeah, as they these don't necessarily want to are. kill people yeah they don't want but to beings kill. that self-possessed yeah. and sure of yourself is yeah. attractive right yeah. and the intelligent but i think what i like about the lector kind of model of a character you know, put the serial killing aside but what i think is attractive about that model and what where it connects to lee is uh, that self-possession is attractive and a person who really knows who they are mm-hmm. I, and i think um what I, but you have this troublesome nature of what they're doing and how they don't like fit into society as a result. They're, they're transgressive figures who are breaking the laws and doing things that you don't want people to do. Yeah. So there's this attraction repulsion. Like I find that interesting. And also the thing that's interesting too about Lecter, by the way, now you start to lose this in later stories, but what's initially interesting about Lecter and what makes him fascinating is you cannot understand him, his mind. That's the whole joke in some ways of Science of the Lambs. Like, here's the psychologist whose mind you can't understand. Uh, and, you know, to beat, catch one serial killer, you have to get a worse serial killer, right? right. Like, that's sort of the, the joke, sort of, you know, inherent structure. What I think is interesting about Lee is if you, you, you as I add sort of gendered dimension to it, um, what fundamentally society hates and fears is a woman who has self possession and wants. It goes after the things she wants. In every facet of our society, we demonize 
women for wanting things and sure. for pursuing what they want without apologies. Yeah, all human history is uh, heaped and with these. It, they're troublesome sure. figures. And if you look at the specifically the genre of horror, uh, you see a weird sort of scenario where women don't even get to be monsters for this reason. Right. Uh, if a woman in horror is allowed to be a monster, she at some point is explained why she is a monster, either because a traumatic past turned her into a monster, yeah. or um, uh, there is some other like way in which she's actually a victim and not a aggressor monster. If, if you we look can closely, be, she's yeah. a victim. So we can be horror form nerds. Here's two really good examples of two big franchises, or they became big franchises in horror that illustrate your point i think beautifully in the halloween series michael myers is a monster from from a little boy and there's no needed explanation he just you know at nine years old killed his babysitter and his sister or whatever and and just is one but in the first friday the 13th right this is before jason Voorhees comes on the scene the killer is the mother and we learn over the course of the story that her bullied child is the reason why she is now killing all of these campers, right? We can't simply accept that she would be, or they would, it's not presented to us in that way. So that's a, interesting. Well, they have, women are in horror specifically are not allowed to have, uh, um, they're not allowed to have uh, interiority that doesn't turn them into victims. Okay, so I wouldn't so say my aren't allowed. Is, I wouldn't say aren't allowed. I'd say have not been presented in that way yeah and now that we see more and more women like Susie Maloney even when they're a serial killer look at Susie Maloney's work right a friend a mutual friend of ours right Mm. no problems there right putting horrific things from a female perspective um, as a female writer as a a woman who has like you know suckled on horror since the uh, since its inception well I don't know Maloney's work well enough to know if she's got a female monster of the type Mm. I'm talking about um but uh, my sort of experiment, in a matter of speaking, is like, can you, one, have a female monster that is not a victim and is not traumatized, is actually uh, self-possessed? You know, she decides... So this is the first pages of the story, Lee, um, is, you know, she... The backstory of the story, Lee, is that Lee has... Uh, realized partway midway through her life uh who she is and and killed her husband and she calls her dad panicking but her dad doesn't pick up the phone because it's late but then later he wakes up in the early morning he calls her back now at this point she's calm and the conversation they have is you know he's like he's like hey you called what's wrong she's like oh nothing's wrong i was just worrying um he says well did something happen she goes no i just killed kevin (laughs) You know, so like now we are sort of into like, well, who, what, wait a second, who is this person? Um, but what she's really done is she's come into herself and this is who she is, whether you like it or not, you know, she is this and, you know, she's going to pursue being this. Now that is precisely, now put the serial killing side of it aside for a second, um, you know, because that sort of comes into it in a different way. But, the, you know, if so you it's like a structure. Hey, Dad, that, I decided to quit my job and I'm going to get a new job kind of phone call tone. Effectively, like, yeah. but the, st- the structure of it is precisely like, you know, a woman has decided to do what she wants. Nobody can handle that in our society, it, you know, fully and completely. Now, individuals can, right? But as a society, 
uh, everything is structured to punish that. And it's not just women, but but it it tends to, in horror specifically, is a literal history of punishing women in the story. Yeah, they address it. Pursuing the things they want. It's addressed in the uh, science fiction, cyberpunk franchise, uh, Ghost in the Shell. It's called the standalone complex. But at the same time, it's very troublesome to have a monster here uh, doing horrible things. Um, And so I think there's an interesting, like, the other experiment, so one experiment of plea is, can I have a female monster in this way? Um, and the other experiment of it is just a real simple narrative experiment. In a slasher film, typically, you have this structure where you're following a victim, and then the monster comes and then dispatches the victim. Then we jump to the other victim. Right. And we keep jump. We only see the monster. We're basically always with the victim perspective. And then they eventually, even when they get dispatched, like we only see the monster come in from their point of view, right? And then they get dispatched, and then it jumps to the next victim. Eventually, you end up with the final girl, and that's who we're following. Can I throw a wrench into your metaphor? What if you just stayed with the monster? That's There's an point. argument to be made now that I hear your uh, supposition. There's an argument to be made that Lee is the victim. She's the first victim of the she-wolf. But she refuses to be the victim. She is being placed in a victim position but is refusing to occupy the position. Therefore, she is a monster. Right. And so you can get into other reasons you could consider her a monster. Now, I'll that's also, sort okay. of the fun. Now, it gets complicated because she's also out there killing people. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. So she's not the kind of, she's not a sympathetic narrator where no. you're like, oh, yeah, not I get silly, it from right? her point of view. Kind of like the Hannibal scenario. Now, I will mention this from right. the art duty. Is, is that uncomfortable? I want, to, I, again, I'm in working in a horror scenario I want the reader to be uncomfortable right and then also uh, one of the horror genre tropes of this type of body horror slasher horror is if they wear a mask the mask has to look cool it's a cool mask right and so one of the first things that we talked about you said like oh I want to do this thing I want to do this thing called the she-wolf and basically it's like in the slasher wheelhouse Realm, yeah. and so they're going to wear a mask and the mask has to look cool you just kept saying it just the mask has to look cool or it all falls apart because if the mask doesn't look cool then the iconography right which is the surface in which the mythology sits and there's also breaks the idea down. that the mask is her true self that's right Right. Yeah. That's also a, yeah. a common. I haven't come up with that. That's a common thing. And so one of the things that I did is I. So we designed this mask. We designed some cool weapons. We found some weapons. And I, I we the one of the premises Make was it that. sound like we found them on the ground. Yeah, no, but <laughs> we kitted it out. Right. We kitted out her her gear, if you will. Mm-hmm. Not unlike a, a, a nascent Batman character or villain. Right. Where it's like these yeah. are the things that are off the shelf that I can make or have. And that's what we gave Lee. And we put them together in such a way that she still looks cool. And also, the other thing that I did, which I have never seen, this was my this was my addition. Not in the script. Alright? Not in the script. So this is my addition. On the illustrated pages of our She Wolf story. As Lee puts her mask on and gets her gear on, and the guy thinks she's changing into her oh, bathing right. suit, oh, yeah. she also is stretching. I have her go through a series of like I love stretching because yeah. she's getting ready to chase a person through the woods mm-hmm. or across the beach. And she likes him. And she likes him. But the physical effort 
is not mythological. The physical effort is grounded in humanity. In order for this person to be able to take this guy on, she has to be formidable in appearance, right? And be able to run him down so that when she catches him, she doesn't have a cramp. Yeah. Right? And so I had her working it all out. Like, she's ready. She's got all the gear. But then she's stretching and getting ready and, like, breathing deep and, like, doing all the things that you'd have to do if you actually had to, you know, kind of like a, like a prize fighter, right? Gets warmed up first. Yeah. The, the two, for me, like, the two big influences is one Hannibal Lecter as a character. I find just a fascinating character. Now, I really don't like a lot of the Sons of Lambs stuff. Like, Sons of Lambs movie is great. Um, the book is great. Um, Red Dragon has some good stuff in it. The show is delightful. The delightful. show is great, yeah. But a uh, lot plug of, like, for the Hannibal art book. I have a piece in oh, the yeah, Hannibal uh, art yeah, book. Yeah, that is a good art book. Yeah. 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 Um, Which I might add, I got to go to Mind Warp FX and see all the original props oh, and wow. prosthetics and corpses. And so all my so renderings... All my renderings for that wow. art piece are from uh, photos I took of the actual props and things in person. Oh, so it was cool. like a particular nice circle where my love of the show, my interest in how they could possibly do this without like, you know, killing half of the extras in Toronto. How did they pull that off? And going to see the special effects department culminates in me being able to make a piece of art. But for even their Hannibal as a character unfortunately they brought in the trauma like oh here's the reason why they mm-hmm. did a whole movie now i understand why they did it but um uh what's interesting about that character is if you disconnect it you know he's this figure of pure malevolence and um you have an attraction or repulsion to the character um i find so he's that sort of character was was a great influence on me but also the comic grendel mm, and, sure uh which is probably my biggest uh, comic influence outside of um, one particular issue, The Sandman. Yeah, for the dear listener, Grendel is a comic written and illustrated originally by Matt Wagner. It's now his creator-owned series. It's done many, many dozens of artists have worked on it. But Grendel is referencing the monster in Beowulf without ever in the story referencing the Beowulf legend at all. It just lets the title pose the question. And there's a Why would we pick the monster as the main character and also the idea different people are Grendel throughout history the Grendel superhero and the idea in Grendel is very it's very minimally inherent the idea is that this is some sort of spirit of violence that keeps possessing Mm -hmm. uh, different people throughout history and you get different versions of the Grendel now you talked to Matt Wagner right did you did you tell him that Grendel for me it's over there did you tell him that you were making a love letter comic to his concept no i don't remember where it was at at that point like i I know i had i'd written a a short novel uh, before anything else and um a friend adam adam petresh um had given me a bunch of feedback on it and i kind of like um put it in the drawer for a little while because you know there's a couple just story things i had to figure out that he had brought up um but uh at that then i started to flirt with this idea of you know, bring into a, a comic realm a little bit. Although I still kind of do the novel, I think. But um, well, both they're Grendel novels too. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He has done Grendel novels. We can stand on the shoulders of giants. John. But in, but anyway, that Grendel. What I th- was interesting about Grendel, uh, like again, you have this character that is a what they call it. It's it's a legacy character. Mm-hmm. We have different people 
wearing the same mask or, or you know he changes the mask a little bit but it's different people take on the mantle of Grendel uh, throughout you know thousands of years like he, he that story kind of goes from like you know 70s-ish uh, crime families to like to the distant post-apocalyptic future yeah, post-apocalyptic yeah. cyborg Grendel and the prime yeah. the with no explanation I want to yeah, say this too no, like, no explanation saw, as to it. why it switches that narrative comic point is of view. Yeah. like you'll just have issues of that comic because I, I was very getting into it and I started to really pay close attention and I bought these Grendel omnibuses where you have all these like crazy issues like if you actually were to imagine picking this comic off the shelf well that's how I got Grendel the first time and I asked it's because, wild because there was a time when there was a couple of different Grendels out at the same time I think Grendel Tales yeah. and then like a Grendel uh, with the subtitle these were all out from Dark Horse and I thought I was picking up the next issue of the last issue of Grendel I read but it actually picked up like a Grendel Tales instead. And even though I was confused by it, the st- at first, the story thread that I understood, I understood what Grendel was supposed to be. So dropping into the middle of another story made it completely understandable as to the motivations of the characters and story arc. But also he'll just, he would just do crazy things. Like there's, there's one issue of Grendel where instead of dialogue, it's just symbols in word bubbles. Mm. Just symbols. And there's no explanation for it. Uh, it's just, oh, this issue, <laughs> people are just going to say symbols instead of words. I love it. He has another I don't think issue I've seen where, that issue. I made a comic just like that. Later. He has another issue where, yeah, it actually kind of reminded me of that a little bit. He has another issue where he just... For Have no, you been withholding this from me? Grendel what is, is stalking. That? One issue, Grendel is sort of stalking somebody. Like, there's actually just a guy going about his day. And what you realize later is Grendel has been stalk- is stalking. You see Grendel is stalking them. And there's no, just no words in the comic. Again, no explanation. It's just, you know, there's just no words in that issue. Experimentation. Well, and this is a medium. This is a person, a Matt Wagner in this case, who understands that the medium can be anything you want it to be. And he's not so caught up in the tropes of this is a superhero comic, this is a sci-fi comic. Yeah. He's just, He'll play these are ways. Tropes. Yeah. And if you really want to see another way where he looks at trope um, and iconography and archetype, his series Mage, which run, has been yeah. running, it's it's. I don't think it's putting too fine a point on it to call it semi autobiographical. Yeah, yeah. Because the character looks like him, and as he ages in real time, and as he puts out new issues of Mage, so too the character continues to look just like he does now. So there's a there's a reason to it, I'm sure. Um, but since I don't know him, I wouldn't speak to it. Now, no, coming back cla- to she-wolf. He's claimed that. He's claimed that Mage is a semi-autobiograph. So I want to ask you this about She-Wolf. So we've talked about your influences, both visual, comic, and narrative influences. What is th- And some of the experiments that you're trying to achieve. When will you know that it's working? Well, I think it's kind of a weird And I don't question. mean commercially. I mean as a artistic expression because you were pulling this is the, the thing i keep kind of struggling with uh because one of the sort of inherent issues problems not maybe not problem but one of the sort of inherent things of it is again if, it, if it's a kind of a legacy character in the sense that maybe not a legacy character but I, I want her to be like a character that you can plop her into different stories spawn also was an influence in this way because you, you had the inherent in spawn like the idea that there's a medieval spawn there's mm-hmm. a whatever spawn like there's been different spawns throughout history and I like that idea. And, uh, you know, this comes around nicely to what I was saying when you were like, he, it, 
the mask just has to look cool. If you ask Todd McFarlane the rationale for many of his character design choices, he will. And I think, you know, this, this is not a deflection. He'll simply say, I chose that because it looks chains. cool. Yeah, it looks cool, <laughs> bud. That is why I picked it. And that is our job. We're a visual medium, so the shape language better look cool. Kids love change. Kids, Kids love, love Kate. Kids love magical blast. They love, right? And that, he was primarily targeting a young audience, so that's what you got to do. Yeah, and like I, I'm less thinking about it in those terms, but there's this level of like, okay, well, if, you know, I, I'm focusing on like Lee as a she wolf, but why can't I, there be, have been other she wolves? Why can't I? There have been. I, and like, I want to kind of have a character that I can put into different stories. One so of the self contained miniseries. Right. Kind of like how Venom used to have miniseries only and there was never sure. a core comic. Yeah. I kind of like that idea. I kind of like the spawn idea. Like, that was in response to Market Forces. Years ago? That was in response to Market Forces. No, I understand no. why, but yeah. I, I still like, to me, like, that was really interesting to me because mm-hmm. as a reader, and I really liked this idea of like self-contained short you know series of narratives and then yeah like imagine a uh a she-wolf character done by justin curry in the shattered vector style imagine she-wolf done by zach schuster like yeah. imagine those versions of she-wolf they would be but they got the so same different yeah same mask but everything else is different they would be it's quite delightful which is you know um as a medium since so much of comics to the outsider is in some ways Byzantine and unassailable. They don't know what they're supposed to pay attention to or why. Giving a repeated... Now, this is my own personal uh, love of semiotics. If you repeat an image often enough, people will ascribe it meaning, whether it had meaning originally or not. So if we keep showing the mask over and over and over and isolate yeah, it in the some artwork, version of it maybe, some but... version of the mask, then people, even if they don't know why, they will you know, think of uh, the hockey mask in Friday the 13th. Think of... Uh, the William Shatner face repainted to be the mask of uh, Michael Myers in Halloween. Think of the gas mask in My Bloody Valentine. Like if you think about yeah. those things, Scream just, is the best example. Scream is a good know, one because any, it's just a mask. There's no person behind it right. consistently. Um, but I like the idea of I, I just having a series character, but I don't have to actually do a series. If that makes sense. Sure. I can pick her up. I can drop her. I can have you know a, an arc where she's absolutely malevolent yeah. and horrific. Another arc where maybe she has some sympathetic goal. Right. You know, I, I like the idea of like a character that has an emptiness to her in that way, where you don't exactly know what she's thinking or what her goals are. And now precisely. you're talking craft, just your ability. Yeah. To craft like, to me, it's stories. like a craft thing. And then on on a so there's like this. Uh, there's a couple like experimental things where I'm just so just go back to your question though how do I well, I know if it's working well to me a bit of it is a gamble of like I don't know if it can work frankly because you know I haven't you've only seen really limited times this happens in horror in Texas Chainsaw Massacre it happens for like one minute <laughs> where you're with the monster and not at a victim POV and it's an upsetting disturbing moment in Psycho it happens for like five minutes um, where you're like unmoored from a victim perspective and a sympathetic character and you're with this person you don't understand who they are or what's why you're with them and what they mean and so on but even in Psycho you don't know they're the killer at that point mm-hmm. um, uh, but it's still jarring and disorienting and people are, were upset by it the people would leave the theaters um, we, in um, Hannibal Lecter again like you know that's a figure that kind of it worked 
pretty consistently with. But again, even that character they had at one point to explain the psychology, like the the industry wouldn't allow it no, sure. to persist. You know, but I mean, we, seven again, was like that because right? of the gendering, though. Also, we don't tend to get women in this position. I don't know if is that because an audience will not accept a woman that uh, does isn't a victim on some level. I'm not sure. Uh, so I, I think I'll know if it's working. I guess if um, if I'm allowed to do it <laughs> in a manner of speaking, right? Like if people will if, keep if, doing if, it, yeah. if people will react and support it in a way. Um, you know, then and if I can just literally get it to continue, then I'll know if it's working. I guess, frankly, there's not like another benchmark to me. Weirdly, it's almost like an industry benchmark. Like if if people don't tear me limb from limb because so is <laughs> they she- hate the <laughs> idea that a woman would pursue things she wants and there's nothing wrong with her well a certain subset of the uh comics community probably will reject yeah, it outright because it's a woman i had that happen when i first came on the scene with uh, you know scene air quotes uh with uh imagination manifest so i had first uh, i guess it was a second year i had a guy screaming at me at my booth in calgary how dare I? So that's almost where I got this idea from. Right. This story. How dare I uh, portray women this way in my comics? And P.S. The way that I was portraying women in issue in the first collected uh, Imagination Manifesto was as the hero. That's it. They were just the main characters. I based one of them on my wife, one of them on my sister. I just made all the characters based around the lived experience of people I know, splash a bunch of genre elements on it, and off to the races. And this one poor triggered man began yelling at me. And I mean, we've now come to see it, this is many years later, as the birth of that. We would immediately recognize him as a comics gate individual now. Right, someone who just wants things to be the, be the way they were. Right, uh, we don't want to change anything. I like my things the way they've always been. And this effort to you know turn comics into woke media. This is the language, but he didn't have any of that language. So instead, yeah, sure. he just became red faced and yelled at me until he got so tired. And I just my my. Um, way of dealing with that at the time was simply to say, listen, he bought the book. I guess he's entitled to his opinion. I'll let him yell it out, right? I didn't feel a different scenario for me because uh, as a male with other men at the booth with me, I didn't feel like I was in any danger. It might have been different if I had had a different, you know, if I was from a different demographic. So I was like, all right, this guy is flipping out. Then I asked him, I told him first, thank you for your opinion. What else can I do for you? And he said, I'd like to buy the next issue, please. Yeah. So like I, I love that story, mm-hmm. and I always think, but like I feel like the inequity now, weirdly, is that women can be heroes. We everyone recognizes that they don't get to be villains, right? Or if well, they do, there's a reason why they're a villain. Really, they're a hero, you know, in their own mind, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I think it's it's an interesting oddity to me, and I just feel like it's worth experimenting with that flip around. Now, of course, I'm conscious of the fact that I'm you know, a guy trying to write a woman. So, you know, I've got some... Uh, uh, actually, one of my friends who's was a, a target by Comicsgate. <laughs> I won't name her at the moment to give her more possible targeting. But, right. 
she was, you know, very she was she was being very heavily targeted by Gamergate and Congressgate right. for a period. She was very outspoken, and uh, I think she had gotten a large book deal around the time as well. Um, if I I maybe screwed the timeline up, but she's you know real pumped about this she wolf, and I was <laughs> I was kind of agreed when I'm further along to do some sensitive reading for me and stuff. But, you know, just the fact that she's doing it will make a bunch of people infuriated. Yeah. But I think, it, like, to do the sensitivity reading, I think as long as you're not advertising your book uh, along the lines of a man writing a woman as a marketing feature, well, uh, yeah, I think you're like a, more or less safe from that. It's not too extremist. Yeah. In this. It's not like, you know, she's... Uh, you know, she's still some white girl. <laughs> right? I see, yeah. But like, uh, and it's pretty, you know, mis- you know, again, like there's a mystery to her motivations uh, in essence. You're talking so about She-Wolf, not She-Wolf, your sensitivity yeah. reader. So in I'm this not case. necessarily claiming sure. to like know the mind of women, you know. <laughs> right. Either. Right. All you're doing is you're saying. I'm just um, sort of presenting. If I present to you a monster, will you accept them as I present it? Yeah, and, and and I'm just really curious to know, like, I, so I won't really, I don't know if what would constitute like it working. I guess, like, to me, it just, if yeah, people want more Lee, yeah, and uh, want more She Wolf. To me, then it works. Well, lean on your lean on your artists. You know, pick cool artists. That's a good way to well, go. That's the other thing. I just <laughs> like a, a character that I could do different stories. I'm gonna have different artists and just you know maybe even plopper in different time periods. You know, like if it's just the spirit of the She Wolf, it doesn't have to be Lee every time. Right. Um, you know, I, so I'm just kind of, I, I feel like there's um, a lot of opportunity there creatively to just to do different things, but have a consistent, like, like Grendel did, you know, mm-hmm. Grendel was so great because he would draw it sometimes he would, he would write it. He, he you had Grendel and Grendel tales, mm-hmm. Grendel. He always wrote Grendel tales. Other people wrote. Was that how that worked? That's okay. how it worked. So you would off. He would not always draw Grendel. So people would play with his toys. Yeah. So sometimes he had other artists doing Grendel. So sometimes is that something that himself. you want to do? You want to have other people come in and write and illustrate? Yeah. Why not? Elements. I mean, illustrate, of course. Yeah. Uh, but um, why not even have other people come in and do writing on it? You know, like uh, I, I think it'd be exciting to have if I could set it up like. A, so part of this, this Kickstarter I'm doing right now uh, is very small. Is we've already done half an issue. Yeah, just to finish out the let's first just do issue. the other half of the issue. Yeah, uh, you know, let's just keep it small and simple. But the idea here is that you know this issue is part of an arc that's going to be a, its own kind of graphic novel. Yeah, that that you would be drawn, and then later on, you know, we maybe do some other arcs and other stories that other people might draw, you know, or even write. You know, uh, if I can get this character established and get you know some build on the character, I feel like it's an exciting way I could work with the different people I could do different things I could be doing even prose comics lots of different stuff but you got a character who's sort of a cipher and can appear in different kinds of stories of different types yeah you know I think it's just if you're a creative person it's important to try different stuff on and uh, see what hits so yeah and like you know we'll see how people respond to it but I, I feel like there's um, there's enough kind of interesting exciting things for it me to be artistically kind of excited about it. like I really like projects where I'm I, I like unconventional narrative structures and unconventional narrative devices well and we can borrow a little from the McFarlane camp because her weapon or some of her weapon kit is this cord tied knives and I cannot wait for the I'm hoping in the second half of issue one 
to I have a few page layouts in mind of separating the panels through the loops of this weapon laid out on the floor. So my idea here, and so here's me pitching you this page sure, layer yeah. right now, is to have the weapon laid out on the floor where the cord is looping in such a way that it creates these pockets of negative space. And it, the weapon has been used. It's clearly bloodied. And then in the pockets on the floor where the loops are laid out, we will depict a series of terrible events that the weapon was used for so that we can subvert space and time and narrative structure, um, make it more literal. So but maybe also, that could be a page where the, we're kind of seeing what she's been up to. And meanwhile, like in captions, she's talking to her dad. <laughs> right, her yes. Day. So this could be, it's a perfect montage element. Of I like the idea also of like, you know, she she has sort of she's not a complete loner she like you know keeps in touch with her dad who completely does not like what she's doing <laughs> but you know he's she, you know she's trying to be supportive of trying like, to be supportive of her without endorsing what she's doing i like that idea of a dynamic of like she'd be like hanging out with him checking in with him and he's like you know absolutely mortified but you know she's still his daughter what's so, she gonna do he's not gonna turn her into the cops right I like think there's like things unconditional like that to love. Play with. He has unconditional love. For I think there's like weird ideas like that to play with in the in the realm too. You know, what if she had a again like you know what are her relationships like as opposed to being a completely um, non relationship having person, which is also a hallmark sure. of having seen monsters. too many early '90s um, bad horror movies. Um, my first thought, yeah, it's easy when to the get father was that. introduced by phone call, I was like, "Oh, that's for sure her first victim." Yeah. So you're now putting on the record that no, the father is very much alive. Yeah, very much alive, and he exists as a supportive figure in his daughter's life, but she's making choices he doesn't necessarily agree with. Right. Yes, this is great. As a dad, I can. Uh, I just I've think been it's in an that interesting position. dynamic. Yes. Like, there's, there, I think there's interesting like dynamics to play with. This is the other thing, great thing with Grendel. Like, well, I also like the idea of a character who doesn't necessarily have a secret identity. Okay, I have a, I have a question for you though. McLuhan, Marshall McLuhan, suggests that what we observe, we become. And so, are we contributing? To the broader That's not violence and says, horror though. of what the McLuhan world. What says is that content doesn't matter; only form matters. Okay, so even in, given that, so are McLuhan we? We would say the more significant thing than anything Lee does is the fact that she is, uh, you know, in a comic. Interesting. Okay, so okay, so I'll give you that. So I'll give you that. Studies Do you think in, in media for that example. us showing? these kinds of things over and over in comics do you think it has a net benefit hold on do you think they have a net benefit to people according to science it's irrelevant gregory so this is what they this is what the study i'm not asking about i'm asking what do you think so well why i think the science is correct so the science of 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 media violence is this um when they you they used to do studies uh, focused on you know children watching they would you know so they done more of these for television than anything else, um, and they do conform to what McLuhan thought. Uh, so initially, what they were saying, of course, was you know they would they would do these studies where children would be um, they'd watch television and then they'd go and play and they observe like how the character children played. So they would have some children you know they were watching you know kind of violent cartoons and then they'd 
have other children who didn't watch violent cartoons and then they would send them out to go play. And the children who watched the violent cartoons were playing more violently. So they started to assume a link. And this is where a lot of your studies... I mean, yeah, your causation and your and but what the correlation, not the same. What they eventually realized yes. was yeah. that they were doing the experiment wrong um, because the control group wasn't watching television. So what they started to do is experiments where you had children watching violent television and then children watching non-violent television. And both of them uh, were playing more violently because watching television is what increased violence. <laughs> okay, so. It didn't matter what the content was. This I was, don't know was, if this is helping your this argument. Was, this was McLuhan's this, basic argument. Okay, so here's that, my... Now, if you flip it to comics, what's more significant no, hold on, hold on. about... I want to re- is I want to respond. She's a comic. I want to respond. We don't have a moderator. Now, so I want to be- respond to your point now. So while I agree with all of that, here's the other thing. Uh, if you have a child who has a nut allergy, okay, the <laughs> yeah, school... Yeah will say nobody should bring peanuts to school because one kid could suffer horribly. Are you just wait, just wait. Point about horror. So yes, consuming horror. So that we as a society will say if it's harmful or triggering to one person, it's okay since there are other things to eat than peanuts to restrict peanuts in the middle schools here in Canada. Now hold on, wait. We also have this proliferation of school shootings and violence at schools. And could there be, I don't expect you to have an answer, well, but I'm just saying, could actually, there be a connection to this idea the that... Better, the better correlation is pornography. So what uh, the studies show consistently with pornography is if you take an area that has, you know, let's say no, that has, and you increase the amount of internet access that exists in the area, what you see immediately overnight are drastic drops in violent crime against women. The more pornography people have access to, uh, the more less violent crime against women in the area. Uh, now, that's not a great and glowing <laughs> statistic, but there is yeah. there is a lot uh, of scientific know. evidence about this catharsis. You could argue, I think, meaningfully. I would uh, like you to cite sources, but this isn't the time for that. You could argue meaningfully uh, that the very reason that you have so much violence in our schools is that there's such a taboo against violence in the culture. Uh, in the school culture. Now, I don't know if that's precisely a good argument. It probably has more to do with things like accessibility so, and weaponry. So does Lee... But let the me... catharsis aspect of horror, uh, I think, is very much you know worth noting there. Now, okay. I personally am not interested in catharsis and horror, but I think that if that's the, the thing you were going to be concerned about, you know, the obvious arguments for catharsis... So if Lee the she I don't find catharsis interesting, though, personally. If Lee the She-Wolf does not exist without the work of Dante's Inferno yeah. inspiring Lee to take on the role of the she-wolf, isn't your own message in whatever medium that there is a danger to certain ideas in print? I think there's, I don't know about in print, but it's Isn't this become a, literally our visual thesis to say some ideas are dangerous and if they get into the head of the wrong person, it leads to violence. I think that's, um, in some ways... It's massively simplistic. Well, but. it's not wrong, though. Like, uh, but when you're in horror, the thing people always forget when in the horror genre is that violence and death are not significant in horror. No, in horror, they're not. They are significant uh, in the yes, human experience. In the, in the this human is experience why I made that connection to Will I See, which I found a very yeah. challenging and difficult book to work on, because even though the characters were fictional... 
In the, the genre, depictions were based on lived experience. In the horror genre, violence and death are just metaphors for other things that are not violence and death. Sure. Unlike in other genres, strangely, in horror, death is just the best thing that can happen. <laughs> right, because there's no—it's the end of suffering. And what's worse than death is the thing that the monster is otherwise doing, besides right. killing you. So, in violence and horror, you know, weirdly, doesn't really have anything to do with the violence. It has instead to do with transformation. Violence is always a metaphor for transformation and change. So it can be positively or negatively uh, associated. Within the confines of the genre of horror. Yeah, so violence in the confines of the genre of horror, like violence in Lee is how she like enacts her being. And she gets to be who she is, uh, but through violence. So it has this weird, you know, nonviolent positive association. Now, in now, reality, before anyone, of you don't want people slaughtering you. For the dear listener, for anyone who thinks like um, it's very structural, is the point in horror. No, it's, I was going to just an easy um, illusion, like thing to get wrapped up in. Is I'm going to give my bona fides. My reasons for challenging Jonathan on this representation is because my own work contains literally yeah. thousands of pages of imagined violence and I am right now at a point in my career where I'm wondering what the cumulative effect of it is. But also you you're very stylized right and and, there's a way to do violence in a stylized manner that doesn't celebrate violence per se but she keeps it on that iconic and metaphorical symbolistic level am i just telling myself that because i do tell myself that <laughs> content is irrelevant uh, fundamentally i'm a structuralist in my heart and i believe like McLuhan, is i believe that McLuhan is right and that form trumps content in every scenario and the problem yeah. is people get wrapped up in content the medium is the message but you can you know this because if you're talking to your loved ones and you can very easily find yourself having a discussion where nothing you're saying actually matters. And only the fact that you're talking matters or the fact that their tone of voice matters. <laughs> right? Uh, content is so little significance. That's it's a not wonderful, that it's totally irrelevant. That's a wonderful elucidation of your point because I realize now I had a conversation, a very serious conversation with my wife where as I walked away, I realized we had accomplished nothing. But they, but we had come to no conclusion. But the fact that we had spent time together trying to solve the problem was to me everything. And, and often that's the, the kind of thing that people will get. That people will often have very dissatisfying conversations because they get caught up in content. This is where like people often complain like that you're trying to um, solve their problem for them, say. They'll come mm. up to you with their problem and they'll complain when you give them a solution to their problem. Mm. You're like, well, why, why wouldn't you want a solution to your problem? Well, they, well, they don't want it. That, that, they, you know, that, that, the, it's a phatic exchange. So coming back around to our fun horror comic, She-Wolf, we got real up there in the rarefied air. Yeah, let's just bring it down. Let's bring it down it to some super <laughs> fun stuff that we're doing. Now, and here's the great part. As an artist, you can be... Uh, you can exist on many levels. So on one level, we have this, our own um, uh, complications and disputes about whether or not it's a structuralist or emotive argument on what you present to people. We can have that argument. But when we boil it all down to the action it takes to make a thing, Jonathan writes a script that I go, oh, cool. Then he says, make the character look a little bit cooler. I present him with some imagery that he goes, yes, this one, this is the one. It's iconic. Then we... 
um, start, I start laying out the pages and start picking a color scheme that makes it feel emotionally like the tone of the story the way I see it. We lay out the beats on the page and we are now out of the rarefied air into action, call, and response. If a character says this, what will we show that they haven't already said? If a character feels this, how do we present it with color and form? And I think that She-Wolf sits really beautifully alongside Eye Collector as a counterpoint to a way to tell a similar story about a monstrous force coming into a person's life. One is She-Wolf is much more structuralist, I'll use your word yeah. now, in the way that I did the art. And um, Eye Collector is much more impressionist in the way that I did the art, right? Not abstract, but impressionist, right? And there's an important distinction there, which we won't belabor with your dear listeners right now. But so I think for us, uh, tackling a new type of story with similar tools and having to adjust them to fit, it's a really wonderful uh, example of how you can change the form of the story and the constituent parts of line, color, uh, text, design to bring out the parts of the story that you really want. I couldn't do, couldn't have done Lee in the, or She-Wolf in the style of the eye collector or would not have, it simply would not have worked. Yeah, and, and I think part of the reason too, as you say, is because it just is a bit more of a, uh, it's almost more of a blocky story and, mm -hmm. and, and, or a more angular story, if that makes sense. There's a lot like, more sharp edges. And now let's yeah. go down one layer down to just pure entertainment. We've got a story where it starts with a like, wait, did that, what did she just say? What is wrong with this person? And then we show what's wrong, quote unquote, wrong with this person. And we depict her as capable, dangerous, a hunting force, a scary, uh, mythological creature and the cool factor kicks in in the entertainment where you're now along for the ride that guy's running and you can't wait for her to catch him <laughs> right yeah, right and when we're doing our job there's a troublesome well, thing there yeah and every time you turn the page of a story like that it's your fault she's getting closer to catching him as the monster at the end of the book right it's your fault yeah that's that another great influence on me actually by the way is john stone and lee smollins the monster at the end of this book this if you don't know it's a grover uh, Sesame Street kids book and I still to this day remember that book it's you know one of the truly great uh, stories yeah it's a horror story Grover it's pleading brilliant. with the reader please don't turn any please more pages, turn pages and building walls and yeah. and every time you turn it it all breaks down but that whole structure of like you're doing things to the book now not just reading it and yeah. you have an active participatory you're actively participating. Every time you turn the page, what I find, you're ensuring a victim what I gets find closer to the she-wolf. And disturbing, or what I find sensational about violent stories is if they allow you to passive, passively observe the violence. Sure. What I think is more troublesome and interesting is if you are being forced <laughs> or being asked to be an active participant in the violence as a reader, and it's now upsetting and disquieting because you're now aware of your role in this story and you know you can't just sit back and observe it to me like that's this kind of story that's more upsetting or depressing or sensationalist and for me the violence is more you know what i mean yeah i'm going to use your word now it's sensational one thing i really liked sensationally in the pages i've done is there's one page of her pursuit where um having introduced 
the visual language of the story that I will float characters from previous scenes, their head onto the page to speak, right? Just isolated mm -hmm. as a drawing, the head of the father speaking has moved from one page to another. The head of the character has moved one page to another, isolated. The final chase scene, the head of the victim is isolated in five repeated, maybe it's six repeated images, getting bloodier and more terrified. And for me, the sensationalized piece is like kind of a secret. It's like, you have to ask yourself, at what point did this head detach from the story and detach from the body of the victim? In that final frame, are we looking at a severed head or at a story beat? And we don't know because Lee's moved on from there. Yeah, and I like, I think, you know, anyway, um, I want to just kind of, kind of close it up a little bit with it by saying that um, one of the things I really think is interesting about uh, doing this particular story and, and this and horror as a genre what I just find interesting about horror as a genre is it has so many of these it, it operates so much on this structural elemental level um, where you really can play around with um, this uh, audience attachment or disassociation and I like the idea of like bringing the audience close and pushing them away and close and pushing them away. Like I find like that kind of engagement with the audience. I used to say um, I didn't want people to just read my books but do things with them. Mm -hmm. And that's why my first book is a choose your own adventure poetry book, you know, and, and later on and my follow-up book is, you know, plays that are impossible to produce. So you have to kind of imagine how they might be produced. Um, and, and I kind of very much have always been kind of going down this even with the eye collector you know there's this idea that you really have to do a lot of work to piece together what you think is um like i get you can't read the book very cleanly and it flows cleanly but there's a lot of moments where you're you're we're bringing them back to an image and they have to sort of remember um where they saw that image last you know and, and to make the connections uh fully make sense for them they have to kind of do a bit of work to figure out, okay, well, you know, yes, I can follow the plot from page to page, but I'm going to miss out if I don't remember that this image was on. And that's the magic of comics back. as a medium. It's one of its real great strengths when I did Infinitum was there's a bit where one of the characters suggests in this time travel murder mystery, I was always there. And if you yeah. flip back in the pages, in the backgrounds, there he is. He was always there. Yeah, and you true. didn't pay attention to it people the reader of comics are so likely to skip background elements when the great simple things in eye collectors where you just keep hiding eyeballs and everything that's right you yeah know, it's like the moon's an eyeball the background the wallpaper's got eyeballs in yeah it. in the car keys in the, the tower in, on the moon yeah. at one point you see the eye collector's home on the moon it's just a giant tower and if you look at it closely what you realize is it's also a candle yeah that was on the dinner table earlier that's right you know so there's great moments like that uh, that i feel like horror offers a lot of opportunity to have those sorts of motifs repeated without necessarily like metaphors can free float in horror in a certain way and they can like zombies as a simple example can mean like zombie can mean anything from you know capitalism is going to eat us to you know our bodies are ways that viruses get in yeah and too i've always just wanted to our bodies kill horrible. my neighbor yeah like there's just it, it can just detach yeah like there's a way in which there's a there's a really malleability to um 
um, my favorite horror writer is a guy named Tony Burgess who wrote Pontypool uh, and the movie Pontypool and also the book is based on Pontypool which changes everything and Tony Burgess uh, in that book posits that the zombie virus is spread through language and it's very you know wrapped up in semiotics he actually has a degree in semiotics um, and one of the I think the brilliant sort of I you know insights of Tony Burgess and the horror genre and zombies particularly is he um, he really figured out he, he, he used to say his zombies were not instead of being metaphors for some for some fear they were metaphors for metaphors <laughs> and what was horrible about metaphors themselves and I always thought that was a really inspiring and brilliant you know kind of way to put it so she wolf maybe isn't as brilliant as Tony Burgess but still <laughs> desire still I think deserves its chance and deserves your support and so uh, please check it out at shewolf.ca. Um, and thanks for talking to me, Gregory. And You're welcome. Maybe I'll put this challenge to the listener. If you believe that um, images of violence in media are the problem, then don't back SheWolf on Kickstarter. And if you think that um, censorship is wrong and that you should be able to see and consume anything you want whenever you want, then do. Making it sound really gory. It's not even that gory. Then do. Even though we talk about blood and knives right. and things. Then do back it on Kickstarter. It's really not um, that gory, though. Because I really want to make... style is very... I really want to make that last 12 pages. Yeah. Well, it will be fun. Um, but yeah, thanks again. And again, check out shewolf.ca. Yeah.